All week long I've been tempted to be clever, to try to give you some spin on the Christmas story that you've never heard before. <coughs> and it's a challenge, let me tell you. And it's been so tempting, but uh, as the week went on, I just felt more and more that the Holy Spirit said, why don't you just preach the gospel in its simplicity? And, uh, and the Holy Spirit will show you and get, maybe give you an application that you've never seen before. But uh, there's no need to be cute and clever. Let's just preach the gospel. Matthew chapter 1. I'm going to do something a little different. Most of the time when we get to this portion of scripture, we just skip right over all these names. But every one of those names is a story. And uh, so I'm going to read them. So let's get uh, into Matthew chapter 1, verse 1. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham begat Isaac. Isaac begat Jacob. Jacob begat Judah and his brothers. Judah begat Perez and uh, Zerah by Tamar. Perez begat Hezron. Hezron begat Ram. Ram begat Amenadab. Amenadab begat Nashon. Nashon begat Salmon. Salmon begat Boaz by Rahab. Boaz begat Obed by Ruth. Obed begat Jesse. Jesse begat David, the king. David the king begat Solomon by her who had been the wife of Uriah. Solomon begat Rehoboam. Rehoboam begat Abijah. And Abijah begat Asa. Asa begat Jehoshaphat. Jehoshaphat begat Joram. Joram begat Uzziah. Uzziah begot Jotham. Jotham begot Ahaz. Ahaz begot Hezekiah. Hezekiah begot Manasseh. Manasseh begot Ammon. Ammon begot Josiah. Josiah begot Jeconiah and his brothers about the time they were carried away to Babylon. And after they were brought to Babylon, Jeconiah begot Shealtiel. Shealtiel begot Zerubbabel. Zerubbabel begot Abiad. Abiad begot Eliakim. Eliakim begot Azor. Azor begot Zadok, Zadok begot Achim, and Achim begot Eliad. Eliad begot Eliezer, Eliezer begot Mothman, and Mothman begot Jacob, and Jacob begot Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom was born Jesus, who is called Christ. So all the generations from Abraham to David are 14 generations. From David unto the captivity in Babylon are 14 generations. And from the captivity in Babylon until the Christ are 14 generations. May God add the blessing to the reading of his word as we pray. Lord, thank you for the word of God. Thank you for the power and the simplicity of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Thank you that from the foundation of the world you had a plan that Satan could not thwart. No matter how hard he tried. You were always right ahead of him. And God, Jesus Christ, not only came to this earth as a baby in Bethlehem, but he grew into a man and he lived a sinless life, was tempted in every way just like we are, yet without sin. And he died that vicarious death in our place. He was buried in that tomb and he rose again, never to die again, and he is alive forevermore. And it's in the name of Jesus Christ that we offer up prayers and ask for your blessing as we gather here today. In his name we pray. Amen. Amen. The book of genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Matthew, the tax collector. 
I don't know if there's any recorded words of Matthew in the Gospels. I don't, I don't know if there's any record of him saying anything. But his Gospel is priceless. It's precious. And the primary audience, the original audience that Matthew wrote to was, was the Jews. And their concern, you know, a genealogy doesn't mean a whole lot to us necessarily. But in that culture, to be a Jewish person and looking for the Messiah, a genealogy would be very important. Now it's obvious, if you've ever compared the genealogies of Scripture, that you know that Matthew has omitted some names. There, this is not every single ancestor of the Lord Jesus Christ. But there are certain ones who are included, and I'm just going to make a brief comment about a few of them. We know, first of all, that Christ is the son of David. He's the son of Abraham. This would be important. The promise of the seed goes all the way back to Genesis. In Genesis 3, and you don't have to turn there, but, but uh, Adam and Eve fell in the garden. And God began to uh, talk about the curse that was going to come into the world. And he, he talks to the man, he talks to the woman, and he talks to the serpent. And one of the things he said to the serpent is he said, I will put enmity between your seed and the seed of the woman. Now that's very interesting terminology, the seed of the woman. Usually when seed is spoken of uh, in secular history or, or in the biblical, it has to do with the father, the father's seed. But here the Bible speaks of the seed of the woman, and I believe that this is early on a reference and allusion to the virgin birth. Certainly Satan couldn't have understood that at that time, but God said that the seed of the woman would bruise the head of the serpent, and he would bruise the heel of the seed of the woman. And ever since that moment, Satan had been on a mission to destroy the seed of the woman. We see right after that, the first murder takes place. Cain kills his brother Abel. And then you get to that nonsense in Genesis chapter 6. And unless you understand the concept of the seed, you'll, you'll not be able to make any sense of Genesis chapter 6, where the sons of God came into the daughters of men. That was an attempt to corrupt the seed. And he was not successful in doing that. We find it numerous other occasions where uh, Satan tried to kill the babies in the days of Moses. And then even when Christ is born, Satan tries to wipe out the babies once again in hopes that he could eradicate the seed, you see. And it started out with a very wide scope. It was simply the seed of the woman. And then we get to Genesis chapter 12. And God calls this man Abram out of Ur of the Chaldees. And he says, in you and in your seed shall all the families of the earth be blessed. That's why it's important that Jesus Christ would be a son of Abraham. Well, then the seed narrows even further. We get around chapter 49 of Genesis. And uh, Jacob is blessing the 12 sons of Israel. And he gets to Judah. And he says, the scepter shall not depart from Judah until Shiloh become nor a lawgiver from his feet. And so we, we learned that from, from that blessing that the Messiah would not just be a descendant of Abraham, but now he would come from the tribe of Judah. And then we work our way to the historical books and we come to Samuel. And Nathan the prophet comes to David. David is intending to build a house for God, but God says, no, I'm going to build your house. And he tells David that the Messiah will come 
from the seed, the family of David. And so it narrows even further. And so we now have this house of David, this dynasty of David. And that's why Matthew begins talking about Jesus Christ, who is the son of Abraham. He is the son of David. He is the royal king. He's the king of kings. He's the Lord of lords. He is the promised one that all of the prophets talked about, that all of the history of the Old Testament, that all of the history of Israel pointed to. Everything is fulfilled in this one person, Jesus of Nazareth. And if Matthew wanted to, and if God wanted to, he could have only listed some of the highlights in the genealogy. But instead, we find insiders and outsiders. We find a Canaanite prostitute like Rahab. We find a Moabitess, an untouchable like Ruth. We find even its greatest king, King David. His adultery is mentioned in the genealogy. He and Bathsheba. We read about some royal rascals like Solomon, like Rehoboam, like Manasseh. He was one of the, one of the bad guys. Uh, Jeconiah, a curse was put on him. I was going to preach on the curse of Jeconiah, and I had a real cute thing worked out for you guys, and you were just going to go ooh and ah, how God worked around the curse of Jeconiah, and the Lord said, no, just plow straight on through. Jeconiah was a royal rascal. There were several of them. By the way, uh, the, the tribe of Judah, they had a few good kings, but the northern tribes, they had no good kings. You know, they, it's a history of failure. And then we have numerous mentions here of Babylon. Why all the talk about Babylon? Well, Babylon is a reminder of Israel's failure. The reason they were carried away into Babylonian captivity is because Israel had failed to keep the covenant with her God. And so God punished them. And so this whole, uh, this whole genealogy speaks not of the victories of Israel, but rather of the failures of mankind. And I have to believe the old tax collector Matthew just kind of grinned as he was writing some of these things. Because after all, he was an outcast. The tax collector was right there with the, uh, the, the harlot and, and uh, the untouchables of society. They were some of the most despised people in the society that, that Matthew lived in. But yet, he is a trophy of God's amazing grace. And here we are reading the words of this tax collector this morning. And I'm glad that Paul said that Jesus Christ is a faithful saying that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief. Hallelujah. Paul thought he was the biggest sinner, and I guess I feel like I am most days, and maybe you do too. But thank God for grace. This genealogy speaks of second chances. It says that wherever you begin, doesn't, it doesn't have to be where you end. It doesn't mean where you came from. It doesn't matter where you came from. It matters where you're going. God is not about what's behind you. God is about what's in front of you. There's a hope set before us, an anchor, steadfast and sure, that has entered beyond the veil in the Holy of Holies. His name is Jesus of Nazareth. He is our great high priest, and now he ever lives to make intercession for you and for me. And we're going to make it because Jesus is alive and well. Now, most commentators go out of the way to talk about the fact that Joseph is mentioned here. If you notice, Joseph is the prominent ancestor here in the Matthew's gospel, not so in Luke's genealogy. But in Matthew, Jacob is the primary uh, ancestor here. And the reason 
being most commentators is because of the royal line. We see that Solomon, it's David, then Solomon, and Rehoboam, and, and Joseph is in that royal line. But actually, if you look at it, you see the scripture teaches that the Holy Spirit really wants you to understand that Joseph was not Jesus' real biological father. The emphasis is not so much on Joseph as much as it is on the fact that he is not Jesus' biological father. Okay? That's the emphasis here, that he's divine. Now, he is first called Christ here. That is his title. That is not his last name. Christ is a title. Christos in the Greek. The Hebrew equivalent is Mashiach or Messiah. He's the anointed one. He is this one that all of the, uh, the prophets had prophesied about, that he would be the deliverer. He would be the one that leads God's people out of oppression, out of slavery, out of bondage, and into victory. He would be the salvation of God's people. Now we get to verse uh, 17, and Matthew talks about there's three divisions. He says there's 14 generations from Abraham to David, uh, 14 from David into the captivity in Babylon, and then 14 from the captivity until Christ. Now, why he divided it into groups of 14, and remember there are some omissions here. Uh, commentators are divided about. Some believe that Matthew being a tax collector, he was an expert at shorthand and record keeping. And he may have organized it in such a fashion that you and I would be able to memorize these names and to, uh, to be able to have it in a, a concise, uh, clear, organized fashion. I don't know. It would be pure conjecture for me to speculate about all that and I have some some things I could share with you if you're interested in knowing more about the 14 and the numbers and stuff I, I you know that's I'm a geek I like to talk about genealogies and numbers and stuff so if you're interested in that see me and, I, and I'd love to talk to you more about that but anyway there's a division here and now we get to verse 18 he says now the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows after his mother Mary was betrothed to Joseph before they came together, she was found with child of the Holy Spirit. And that is the end of that <laughs> description. It's amazing, isn't it? Uh, that raises all kinds of questions, doesn't it? The how, you know, how is all this going to happen? And yet Matthew just leaves it right there. <laughs> he says that, uh, that she was betrothed to Joseph. And some of you studied this already in Sunday school. So this is not new material for you, but... Uh, betrothal was different than our engagement period uh, when we we get engaged to one another now it's it's not nearly as formal or as legally binding and that it was as good as a marriage there uh, the only way that a betrothal could be dissolved in those days was by a legal divorce that's how serious it was the marriages were typically arranged and there would be a period of about a year's time of betrothal and in that time uh, it would be a, a, a chance for the, to make preparations for the household, but also to demonstrate the purity and the chastity of the individuals involved. So, Joseph, however, was not yet convinced of the virgin birth. And if, you know, if you're just, just going to be real, you might have a hard time with it too. Amen? <laughs> I mean, we got 2,000 years of Christian history, and so we hear about the virgin birth, and we're like, oh, yeah, we've been singing about that our whole lives. 
But this is kind of a new concept for Joseph, you know. And he's taking some time to process this. And there's a lot of implications here. And so Joseph is not yet convinced of the virgin birth. There may be some of you here today that are not convinced of the virgin birth. But I believe it's an essential doctrine. If Jesus Christ was not born of a virgin, then he's not God. And if he's not God, we're wasting our time. We ought to be out on the golf course this morning or at IHOP eating a Rudy Tootie fresh and fruity. <laughs> or whatever they call it now. That's what they called it back when I was younger. Not quite so long in the tooth. But anyway, if he's not born of a virgin, hey, this whole thing falls like a house of cards. Stack of dominoes. It's, and there's some things that we just can't explain through apologetics no matter how bad we want to. I tell people this all the time. You know the Bible itself, the very first book of the Bible, it opens up with a statement of faith. In the beginning, God. There's no explanation for God. We don't have an origin story. We don't have a genealogy for God, as if he had one. But we're not given any explanation other than he is. He is. And I believe that the same is true of the virgin birth. You know, if you're determined, bound and determined not to believe it, no, no amount of evidence would convince you. No amount of reasonable scientific evidence would convince you. Faith is a matter of the heart. Faith is a matter of the heart. And when God opens your heart, it becomes the substance of things hoped for and the evidence of things not seen. We can believe. He doesn't go into a long description. He just says that the Holy Spirit was the agent of conception in the birth of Jesus Christ. Do you believe that this morning? That settles it for me. Okay, Joseph might need a little more convincing. Now it says, then Joseph, her husband, being a just man, I think the Greek word is dikaios. It's where we get the word dikaiosune, which means righteousness. He was, a, he was a righteous or a just man. Joseph was a godly person. Joseph was a just man, not wanting to make her a public example, was minded to put her away secretly. I may talk more about Joseph, so I won't go into great detail today about him, but I love Joseph. I love him. The Bible says he was a righteous man. He was a just man. He was a dikaios. That means that he obeyed the word of God, that he, uh, he was familiar with the law of God. He feared the Lord. He was a, a, a godly man. Now, the law, according to the law, as far as the information Joseph has, if he wanted to go to the extreme, he could have her put to death. Now, by that time... They weren't doing much of the death penalty in Israel because they had lost the right to do that because Rome was now an occupying power. And so that's why the Jews were, you know, they were trying to get Pilate to, to take care of Jesus. And they had lost the ability, but they still would try to stone folks every once in a while. They did it with Stephen and Paul, and they would have stoned Jesus if God, that, that had been in God's plan. But um, Joseph, if he had wanted to, at, at minimum... He could have uh, had her put away. And he could have publicly shamed her. But here we see righteousness and mercy meeting in the person of Joseph. Joseph's a godly man. He's a righteous man. He knows what the law says. He knows what his legal rights are. But he opts for mercy instead of justice. 
And I believe that you and I, if we'll opt for mercy and grace instead of justice, God will bless us every time. Every time. If you've got a chance to show grace, show it, my friend. Because one day you're going to need it. <laughs> one day, I promise you, if you live long enough, one day you are going to need mercy and you're going to need grace. So you might as well show it now so that when you give it, you can receive it. When the time comes. Joseph was not willing to make her a, private, a public example. He was going to put her away secretly. But while he thought about those things. And the Bible doesn't condemn him for thinking about things. And I think we need to be patient with those who are not yet convinced with biblical truth. You know, because this is a process for some. Some people it takes a little more evidence for them. Like Thomas. You know, Thomas needed a little more, right? He, he wasn't just ready to just believe right away. He, he needed a little bit more, and Christ gave him what he needed. And, and I'm not saying everybody needs a, you know, a million signs or wonders or whatever, but let's be patient with people as they're pondering the truths of Scripture, as they're in this process of faith. And while he's thought about these things, it says that the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream. See, Joseph was not only a righteous man, he was not only a merciful man, but he was a spiritual man. God spoke to him in a dream. I believe God still speaks to dreams. Now, I don't believe every dream that we have is from God. Sometimes it's because we ate too much pepperoni pizza before we went to bed. Listen to me. If your dream does not line up with the Bible, you can know it's not from God. God's not going to give you a dream about falling in love with somebody else's spouse. That didn't come from God. Right? It's not, God's gonna, not going to give you a dream to do something ungodly. If it's a biblical dream, it'll be scriptural. And more often than not, God will reinforce that thing. Just like Joseph, the dream will be doubled. You know, he'll know that it was from God. But anyway, I'm talking about Joseph in, in the Old Testament. But now Joseph has a dream here. And he says, Son of David, again, that important title. Do not be afraid. Literally in the Greek, stop being afraid. Stop being afraid to take to you Mary, your wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. Okay. Now, Mary, no doubt Mary told Joseph what all happened. Was Joseph convinced when Mary told him? Apparently not. <laughs> but now God's going to talk to Joseph. You see? And, and that's the way it is with us. Sometimes we talk to people, and they love us, and they trust us, but they're not convinced. But if you just let the Holy Spirit do His job, and you just plant the seed... And then you water that seed or what, you know, whatever your part is in the process. And you trust God with the results. The outcome will always be better. You can't bully somebody into believing. I know because I've tried. And I've been on the receiving end of it too. I'm a hard-headed rascal. You're not going to bully me into nothing. Anything, you're just going to make me mad. But anyway, uh, do not be afraid. And by the way, whenever the Bible says do not afraid, fear not, you can just put your name in there and just receive that as a promise from God because it's in the Bible like over 300-something times. So that's like one for every day. So whatever you're going through, just take it as a promise from God. Don't be afraid. Are you facing a tough week ahead? Don't be afraid. You got a doctor's appointment coming up? Don't be afraid. Are your finances looking shaky? Don't be afraid. Do you feel like your family's going to fall apart? Don't be afraid. God's still in control. You're looking at the world around you and seeing the news and, and seeing trouble in the Middle East and inflation and political unrest, civil unrest. Don't be afraid. God's still on the throne. That's what God's saying to you. And he tells Joseph not to be afraid for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. There is no record here 
of Joseph arguing with the angel. Now, Zacharias had an angel appear to him, and he had a little tough time with it, didn't he? And he had a, a little speech impediment that came upon him because of his, his uh, unwillingness. You don't see that with Joseph, okay? That which is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. And she will bring forth a son. Notice Joseph is not involved in the process. She will bring forth a son. And here's where Joseph comes in. You will call his name Jesus. For he will save his people from their sins. Hmm. First thing I want to say is Jesus, uh, in the Greek is Jesus. In Hebrew is Yeshua. It's the same Hebrew word as Joshua. Same Hebrew word as Joshua. And it means the Lord's salvation. Now, here's the thing. Most of us don't name our babies Jesus. Now, now I know some in the Latin American community, they still name their sons Jesus or whatever. I'm not here to make a commentary on that one way or the other. Most of us don't name our little boys Jesus. Okay, But that was a very common name in that period. And it may reflect one of two things or both. It may be, it may reflect every parent's desire that their son would be the Messiah. It might, because his name means Yahweh's salvation. It could also be the fact that it was such a common name that Christ came as one of us. An ordinary Joe, if I could use that phrase. Now, he was not ordinary, right? But he came, and the Bible says he was tempted in all points like as we are. It says in the book of Hebrews that we do not have a high priest that cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities, but he was in all points tempted like we are, yet without sin. And so I offer both of those as, as conjecture or food for thought. But what about this idea? He will save his people from their sins. I'm sure the average Jew looked at that and thought, hmm, that's not the, that's not the kind of Messiah I'm looking for. I'm looking for somebody that'll save me from Rome. I'm looking for somebody that'll save me from captivity. I'm looking for somebody that'll save me from occupation. I'm looking for somebody to deliver me from Caesar. Somebody to deliver me from poverty and into prosperity. That's what I'm looking for. But Matthew gives us a clue that this is a different kind of king, you see. He's coming first and foremost to deal with the sins of his people, whoa. Well, I'm a descendant of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Good for you. You still need to be saved. I was circumcised when I was a young boy. Good for you. You still need to be saved. He came to save his people from their sins. And then we get to one of those famous formulas in verse 22. Matthew's going to use this formula a lot. He shows that Jesus Christ is the culmination, the fulfillment of everything the Old Testament prophets had spoken of. So all this was done that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by the Lord through the prophet. And the prophet was Isaiah. And you probably read about it in Sunday school this morning. And I had it out on the, the marquee sign here this, this week too. Behold, the virgin shall be with child and will bear a son. And they shall call his name Emmanuel which is translated, God with us. Mm. Now, in Isaiah's day, that prophecy had an immediate fulfillment. Okay? But as is the case with many of the Old Testament prophecies, 
they had a, a, an immediate component and then they had a component way out in the future. And such is the case here. The ultimate fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecy is found in Yeshua, Jesus the Christ. Now he's got three names mentioned here in, in Matthew chapter 1. Number one is Christ. That's his title. He's the Messiah. He's the anointed one. Nextly, next he's called Jesus. I said nextly. There ain't no word nextly, is there? There's firstly and lastly. But no nextly. Note to self. <laughs> oh, I always come up with some doozies, don't I? Praise the Lord. Keeps you humble. Keeps you humble. Nothing like inventing some words on Sunday morning. Next, his name is Jesus, Yeshua, Jesus. Common name, he's one of us. But his name means Yahweh saves. He's come to save his people from his sins. But he's got a third name, and I don't read anywhere where they called him this. Hey, Emmanuel, come here. No. But he's called Emmanuel, and, and the, the name Emmanuel is, means God with us. You want to know what God's like? Look at Jesus. Jesus said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. You want to know what God's like? Read the Gospels. And look in the person of Jesus Christ, and you'll see exactly what God is like. He's Emmanuel, which translated as God with us. Then Joseph, being aroused from sleep, asked for another sign from heaven, whether this should be true or not. Is that what it says? Nope. That's in the International Scoffers Version. Nope. Mary's word and the dream from the angel was all that was necessary. Because Joseph was a godly man. He was a righteous man. He was a merciful man. He was a spiritually in-tuned person. He was a discerning person. And it says, Joseph, being aroused from sleep, did as the angel of the Lord commanded him and took to him his wife and did not know her. And we all understand the euphemism there, so I'm not going to belabor the point. Until she had brought forth her firstborn son. Now, this kind of flies in the face of the perpetual virginity of Mary, as the Catholic Church teaches. The Bible does not teach that Mary was a perpetual virgin. But that's not my, my goal here, is not to convince you of that. Jesus did have half-brothers and, and sisters and, and, uh, and so on. But Joseph did not know her until she had brought forth her firstborn son. And he, meaning Joseph, called his name Jesus, the obedience of Joseph. I love it. And so we, here we have the opening narrative of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It may not satisfy all of our curiosities, but it gives us enough to process and know that everything that we've been looking for, we can find it in the person of Jesus Christ. Everything, all the hopes, all the hopes and dreams of all the generations. And I love how Matthew brings it all to a climax there. He starts with Abraham and brings it all the way. And he says, look, there's, there's the king. He's the king. He's the one you've been looking for. He's the one you've been praying for. Here's your deliverer. He may not look like you want him to look like. His ministry may be beyond the scope of what you thought it would be. But he is every bit 
everything the Old Testament had ever predicted. Would you stand this morning? You may be here today and, and uh, you may not be convinced of the virgin birth. You may not be convinced of a lot of things. But I believe that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. And if your heart will remain open, just like Joseph, I believe God will speak to you and reveal you to this, this truth that Jesus is the Messiah. And he's not just one of many messiahs. He is the only way. Jesus said there is but one way to God. It's not popular. Some would call that narrow-minded. I call it biblical. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. That is the only way you can come to God is through the Son, Jesus Christ. And the good news is you don't have to get good enough to come to Him because He is good enough to save each and every one of us. He lived a perfect life. He died on the cross. He died for every person in this room. There's not a person in this room that Jesus did not die for. You say, well, I don't believe in him. He still died for you. If you, if you, receive, if you refuse that, if you reject that, that's on you. God loves you anyway. God loves you even if you don't love him. I don't know hardly anybody like that, do you? But God said he loved us. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. If you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, it's not complicated. You come to this altar just as you are, and you say, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And guess what? You'll be in good company because there's a room full of sinners that have been saved by grace. Would you come?